0: The story is headed, where Isaiah is looking forward to. Um, If you are just joining us this morning, we are coming towards the end of our summer series on the book of Isaiah, and so um, I think you're 34 chapters behind. No, uh, So we'll, uh, this is where we're jumping into. I think it'll make sense, uh, but I just want you to know we're, we're, we've been in the book of Isaiah, uh, working our way through uh, the first uh, 39 chapters of Isaiah. Several months ago, when we started this series, uh, somebody asked me, uh, well, why aren't you doing all of Isaiah? And I said, because there's 66 chapters in Isaiah 1, and... Um, Isaiah is a really important book of the Bible for us, uh, but I don't want to wear you out with Isaiah in one summer or just kind of keep going. So uh, we'll cover the rest of Isaiah next summer. So we're splitting it at 39 because it's roughly halfway. And also there is a, a natural division in the content and the context uh, between chapters 39 and 40. Um, In fact, a a lot of scholars will debate whether these are one book, two books, whatever. I'll I'll let them argue that out in in the commentaries and things like that. But there is a shift uh, once we get to Isaiah chapter 40 in the context in which Isaiah is written. But there's a lot here in Isaiah. Because Isaiah is written at a crossroads in Judah's history. If you think back to the the story of the Old Testament, with with Abraham, God begins to choose and work through a single group of people. Initially, it's a project he's undertaking with all of humanity, but that kind of does not go according to plan, as it usually does with human beings. Uh, And so God chooses to work through uh, Abraham and through his descendants. They get sidetracked with 400 years of slavery in Egypt, and eventually Yahweh has to come and rescue them from Egypt only to spend 40 years wandering around in the wilderness eventually they get settled in the promised land they have this period where they're led by a group of people called the judges but the people want a king they want to be like everybody else Uh, God gives in and lets them have their king that project doesn't go according to plan and soon Saul is the first king, he's turning away from God trying to do things on his own And so God then anoints David. Well, Samuel goes and anoints David on God's behalf. And we see an expansion of the kingdom of Israel. And then David's son, King Solomon, uh, constructs the temple. And Israel experiences a time of relative peace or shalom in Israel. And following Solomon, it kind of all goes to pot again. And the kingdom gets divided. A series of kings do evil in the sight of God. And now the whole chosen people project seems to be going downhill and downhill fast. And So they stop and they wonder what's happening. So it's at this point that Isaiah is writing this prophecy. Helping the people to see what has gone wrong. Why they're in the predicament that they are in. And looking forward. To a time of restoration. And so Isaiah is really a bridge to the new covenant story in Jesus. In many ways, Isaiah helps to tie together many of the themes of the, the Hebrew Bible. We see the themes of Yahweh overcoming the uncreated chaos by speaking into existence and ordered creation. And Isaiah kind of reminds us of that theme. Yahweh choosing a group of people to bless in order that all nations might eventually be blessed and come to realize the reign of Yahweh. Not over just Jerusalem, but over the entire cosmos, over everything that is created. And Isaiah is looking forward to that. Frequently, Isaiah has been looking into the future, trying to give a glimpse of a restored reign of Yahweh. And so when we flip the pages then into the New Testament, the gospel writers are making frequent references back to Isaiah. Linking the restoration project that Isaiah had looked forward to, the gospel writers want us to understand that this is coming to fruition in Jesus. John's revelation will connect back to some of the themes and some of the images uh, of Isaiah as well. <clears throat> Sorry, I got a little frog in my throat. So if you and I are people of the New Testament, if that's what we call ourselves, Isaiah matters quite a bit for helping us understand what this New Testament, this new covenant is really all about. And so this is why we've been wrestling with Isaiah. As we take a look at these chapters this morning, would you pray with me? Jesus, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. Would you continue, Holy Spirit, to move, uh, to, to whisper in our ears and in our hearts the message you would have us hear and go forth to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those of you that have been with us, the last several chapters, we've been covering kind of a chunk of chapters the last couple of weeks, have kind of been uh, somewhat separated from a historical context. We haven't really needed to know a lot about what was happening in the ancient world in order to kind of get through those chapters. We, we know that Isaiah is basically telling us that all of the kingdoms around are going to experience God's judgment for their failures, for their excesses, for the, uh, the way they have not practice justice for the way they have been violent to one another around, Isaiah is kind of saying all of them are going to be judged, going to experience God's judgment. Well, as we move into the chapters uh, 28 through 35 for this week, uh, we're starting to kind of uh, bump up against some of the historical events that are happening in this book of Isaiah. At the beginning of Isaiah, the world power in, in charge of the ancient Near Eastern world at that time was Assyria. And there's a couple of kingdoms. Syria, or sometimes called Aram, uh, had united with Israel, which is the northern kingdom of the, the, the Jewish people. Um, we'll just term it that way for now. Um, they have come against Assyria, and they had tried to coerce Judah, into joining their alliance. Instead, Judah had chosen to become a vassal state to Assyria. So rather than um, get co-opted into the the Israel-Syria alliance, they had chosen to pay a lot of money to Assyria and kind of get protection from Assyria. And so they were kind of under the thumb, under the constant watch and rule and reign of Assyria. Sometimes enjoying protection, but basically just paying a lot of money into the king of Assyria. Now Babylon is on the move and is threatening Judah. And Assyria is beginning to collapse as an empire while Egypt and Babylon continue to grow. And what happens in Judah is they are going to try and play both sides of these um, conflicts. They find themselves in the middle of these world empires kind of clashing against one another. And Judah is ultimately going to suffer as kind of this border kingdom in between these These big boys kind of clashing for control of the ancient world. What we see is themes of Isaiah that are tied together in these chapters of judgment, hope, and restoration. We see judgment in in the ways that Isaiah looks back to condemn the self-indulgence of the leaders of Israel. He sees that they have done whatever they wanted. they've, They've only worried about themselves And Isaiah calls them to account because of this. Israel, or the the northern kingdom, eventually will be a conquered people. They will be taken into exile in the year 720 BC by the Assyrians. And when they enter exile, they will cease to be a coherent group of people. They're the the ten lost tribes of Israel. They kind of... uh, Dissolve into all of the other people in the ancient Near Eastern world. And and they no longer maintain their distinctive practices of worshipping Yahweh. Judah's leaders are also being criticized by Isaiah. We, We don't always think of the political stuff that is going on within the Bible stories. But as Assyria is beginning to lose control of its empire... Because of different uprisings around their their kingdom, some in Judah are seeing an opportunity to join Egypt against the Assyrians. And so there's political insiders trying to whisper into the king's ear, you know, we really ought to align ourselves with Egypt for the moment so that we can kind of free ourselves of these Assyrians. And so Judah will become this pawn caught in the middle of two empires. And frankly, neither empire really cares much for Judah other than to be a buffer between these rival empires. In the end, jumping back and forth between alliances with different empires will be Judah's undoing. Judah's leaders in this moment, in these chapters, are looking for a shortcut. How many of you have ever looked for a shortcut? Isaiah is speaking out and condemning Judah's current pursuit of an alliance with Egypt, their perceived shortcut. And so Isaiah writes in chapter 30, "O rebellious children, says the Lord who carry out a plan, but not mine. Who make an an alliance, but against my will, adding sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my counsel, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Do you remember how well that story went the first time Israel went down to Egypt? you remember it didn't work out too well for them? And they really haven't learned their lesson. Therefore, the protection of Pharaoh shall become your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation. For though his officials are in Zoan and his envoys reach Haines, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them. That brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. Later, Isaiah will write, alas, for those who go down to Egypt for help and who rely on horses, who trust in chariots, because they are many, and horsemen, because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel, or consult the Lord. Here's the gist of the story. Judah's leaders are relying on a political policy to come to their rescue. They essentially say, if we align ourselves with Egypt... Then we will be rescued from Assyria. And then maybe we can rebuild the Davidic kingdom. Maybe we can get back to the good old days of David and Solomon. And so this is the shortcut Judah wants to take to get through God's refining process. How many of you have taken a shortcut before? Yeah. Judah's context now is that Isaiah is living at a time of great upheaval in the ancient Near Eastern world. He's seeing the rise and fall of some of the ancient world's biggest empires. There are monumental shifts, enormous instability all around him. And Judah goes looking for a quick fix in a political alliance with Egypt, rather than repentance and trust in Yahweh. Hear these words from Isaiah 30, 15 to 16. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you refused and said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore you shall flee. And you said, we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. Isaiah says in returning or repentance, repentance and trust shall be your strength. But you thought you could run away from it. The leaders of Judah think that they can shortcut this whole system. They think they can find their own shortcut through God's refining process of, of this judgment and hope and restoration. We're going we're to take a shortcut and, and get around God's lengthy process because it doesn't seem to be matching up with our own timeline. We don't have the patience to wait on Yahweh's timeline. And so we're going to take a shortcut. How many of you have taken a shortcut before? Okay. Isaiah says, there will be no escaping. Turn back to him whom you have already betrayed, O people of Israel. So here's a side story. We've covered this story before. I've talked to you about it. But I think it bears repeating, bears reminding us. That over the last roughly 1700 years in the West, we've lived with this thing called Christendom, where culture was largely shaped by an understanding of the biblical story. It basically, if you asked the common person what is the Bible, they knew right away what it was. If you asked who is Jesus, they knew basically the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They all celebrated Christmas, they all showed up at church at Easter, and basically everybody kind of had a basic understanding of the story. And now there's some good sides to that. Universities that that rose up to expand knowledge of the created world. We want to know more about this creator God. And so we're going to study him. And that's a a great thing. We have hospitals. A a system of caring for the sick and the dying. In in, in the early Christian world, uh, Christians were known for caring for the, the poor and the sick when plagues came to a city, and eventually it made sense to have a system of caring for those people, and so they developed hospitals. That's a a beautiful uh, legacy of this time. It was also a seedbed for philosophy and political systems that emphasized the importance of individual choice. But of course, there's a whole negative side to this as well. Wars, inquisitions, conquests, subjugation, slavery are done in the name of God. And there are a whole lot of skeletons in the closet that we Western Christians would just rather leave in the closet.
1: And when anybody else
0: opens the closet and takes a look at our skeletons, we get really upset about that. and We get really offended by that. But in this time of Christendom, people basically knew the story of the Bible and who Jesus was. And now things are in turmoil, upheaval, and change. Whatever word you want to use. In many ways, not terribly dissimilar from the story unfolding in Isaiah. These are the last gasp attempts in Isaiah. To continue their version of the kingdom. The nations and empires of the world are seeming to challenge the God of Israel. Threatening the covenant to Abraham. Threatening the covenant to David. And actually in the very next chapter, uh, chapter 36, a messenger from the Assyrian king will directly challenge Yahweh. will directly challenge his lordship and his rule and his reign. Basically, he comes to Jerusalem and says, look, all of the other kingdoms of the world have fallen to the king of Assyria. What makes you think Yahweh is going to be any different? What makes you think this is going to be any different than all the other kingdoms we've wiped out and sent into exile? What Isaiah's instructions in the face of becoming conquered and exiled is two things. To repent and trust. To repent of a failure to practice justice on behalf of the poor and the needy. This is a theme that runs throughout Isaiah. To repent of worshiping idols, of placing other things in place of worship of Yahweh. It's not a major theme in Isaiah. It is a major theme of some of the other uh, Old Testament prophets. To repent of their self-indulgent behavior. Their ancient hedonism. Doing whatever feels right in the moment. And their failure to trust Yahweh. Their failure to trust the story of the story of Isaiah is that Yahweh is ultimately in control. Despite everything that's happening around them, despite the, the upheaval and the turmoil, God is in control. God is using these empires as tools for a time, tools for a moment to refine his people. And Isaiah is really good at looking at the events happening around him, and seeing that Yahweh is moving to judge, refine, to bring hope, and ultimately to look forward to restoration. So maybe our path forward as followers of Jesus today looks something like Isaiah's path forward. I always want to be careful of saying our situation is exactly like theirs, that everything God says exactly to Israel and to Judah is exactly what it means for us living today. But, but I think there's some patterns that, that jump out and should challenge us and help us as we move forward to repent and to trust. What do we repent for? How do we start that? Well, maybe we start with Isaiah's suggestions. A failure to practice justice on behalf of the poor and the needy. To worshipping idols, anything we place in front of God. Maybe we need to repent of self-indulgent behavior and take your pick in our culture. Rampant consumerism, hypersexuality, overextended individualism. And it's not just, please, in the church we often think that's their problem, that's the problem out in the world. Folks, we all wrestle with those things, too. They creep in. They're they're part of our lives just as much as they are of theirs. It's not just their problem. Maybe we need to repent of our failure to trust Yahweh. Trust God. To trust that Jesus is Lord. Heaven knows the church keeps trying the political alliance route. And that has not worked. All that well. And so we need to trust. People keep trying to guess what the future will look like. Here at Spring Creek, we, we're trying to make plans for the future, but the, the truth is there are a lot of unknowns even in these times. So we take small steps. Forward, trusting Jesus to be our guide, trusting that the Holy Spirit will continue to breathe life into His church. How many of you have taken a shortcut before? Who doesn't like a good shortcut? I saw a friend post uh, something about this uh, this week about trying to compete against your GPS in your car. You know, when you plug in your, your destination and it spits out, here's how long it's going to take. How many of you say, challenge accepted? <laughs> I know I do. Yeah, I, I want to try and get there sooner than that GPS. Now, uh, with Google Maps and, or whatever app you use, it adapts to changing traffic conditions. And so it's hard to compete to know uh, what it's counting down the seconds. But there are times I like to think I know better than a GPS how to get somewhere. Shortcuts don't always work the way we think they might. A few years ago, I was going to visit some friends down in Lancaster, and I didn't know exactly how to get to to where we were meeting, but I kind of had a a general gist of where it was at. But I had plugged it into my GPS just so as I got closer, I, I would have good directions for how to get there. Except as soon as I got down to like 283 area, it wanted me to start going off on these back roads. And I thought, well, that sounds ridiculous. You know, like it's, it's shorter, just get on the highway, get into Lancaster. And so I'm like, I know better than the GPS. It's going to take me much shorter time if I just get on 283. Most of the time that may actually be correct. But this particular day there had been an accident. And so I got on 283 trying to compete against my GPS and shortly got in this long, you know, touch-and-go traffic. If I would have stuck with the GPS, I would have gotten there much quicker. But I thought I knew better. My GPS directions had taken into consideration current traffic patterns, and it had actually given me the better way of getting there. So I wonder what shortcuts do I try to take? I stopped and I was asking myself that this week. Being pastor doesn't mean that I don't like shortcuts. And don't have things to repent of and to work on trusting. In fact, I think being pastor just means I'm going to share my stories. I'm going to share my struggles. I'm going to share that I like the shortcuts as much as anybody else. I'm prone towards shortcuts in following a model of ministry because it worked somewhere else. In fact, I took classes on models of ministry. And if you follow this model, this will happen, right? Because we all live in the same context and all have exactly the same people and are all dealing with exactly the same situations. So I like to see what works somewhere else and try and do. There are ways that this can be really helpful and a useful thing to see what others have struggled with. Unless it becomes about applying someone else's strategy for a context that is not our own. I can tell you that shortcuts uh, have looked extra appealing through the last year and a half of COVID. They've looked really, really interesting and really, really tempting. And I keep wanting to think that this refining process or this time of learning for the church and for society is just about at an end. Yet it keeps dragging on. And I keep hoping and looking for shortcuts like the leaders of Judah. I have to confess that as a father, I'm prone to shortcuts. If I need the boys to do something at home like clean up a room, which happens about every day, (laughs) I'm prone towards threatening their screen time and then nagging them to get the thing done rather than helping them understand how we work together and then allowing them to make good or bad choices and to learn from those choices. But frankly, I'd rather have the shortcut of just yelling at them until they get the job done. That's my shortcut. As a husband, I take shortcuts. And I can tell you shortcuts don't usually work too well. But that hasn't stopped me from trying. Isaiah doesn't put out a shortcut for Judah. There is just the hard work of repentance and trust. And so I don't want you to be under any illusion that these are quick fixes. That you just come and you say, well, um, I repent and and now I'm trusting. See, God, I'm, I'm trusting and so we can move on, right? We can just like get past this process. We can, you know, I did the thing. I repented. I trusted in this moment. That's not how it works. The story of Isaiah is a communal story. Isaiah is part of a people he knows is broken and messed up. He says, I live among a people of unclean lips. And the story of the church being grafted into the people of God is a communal story. We are the body of Christ, our Father in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Deliver us from evil so church, we need to work at confession, at repentance, and at trusting with one another. But also the story of Jesus that forms us into the body of Christ is also the story of Jesus inviting you and you and you to personally enter that story. Make no mistake, we are on an adventure. We don't know the twists and turns, but we know the journey is worth it. At least that's why we gather to remind one another of that each week. The journey with Jesus shapes and molds. At times he uses it to judge and to refine. It is a journey full of hope. And one headed toward the restoration of all things being made new in Christ Jesus. So the scripture that Penny read for us at the beginning is also the place we turn our eyes and place our hope and our trust. The place that we start is repentance and trust. Amen.